0: Welcome to Academic Advising for a Wise Education. This is the podcast that teaches things about higher education to help improve your learning and studying, make smarter choices of a major and coursework, understand how colleges and universities work, find internships and research assignments that complement your classroom learning, be financially sensible, become academically mature, prepare for graduate school, and plan for your future career. I'm Advisor Jay. Today's topic is majors and minors. In this episode, I'm going to talk about the purposes of undergraduate majors and minors, when to choose them, and how important it is to select yours wisely. I'll also talk about the curriculum for a major or minor. My name is Jay, educational advisor and guide to success in higher education. My goal is to help you learn to be better in school and make wise choices with your education. Think back to being in elementary school. Remember when you had almost no choice on what subjects to study? You simply learned whatever subjects you were told to, and you probably had a single teacher for almost all subjects except a foreign language. Then you went to middle school or junior high school where you could make a few choices, but there were still lots of compulsory subjects. In high school, maybe half of the subjects you studied were of your choosing. Community college or university is where things change. Now suddenly you have the freedom to decide what direction you want to take your education. This is a big decision that you may be asked about for the rest of your life in conversations with family, friends, acquaintances, and business associates. People may ask what school you went to and followed by that what did you major in. In college or university you get to choose a general subject to focus your studies on and that focus is what we call your major. Your major communicates to others your emphasis of study and gives some idea of possible career paths you are preparing for and are interested in. Potential employers may want to know how you went about deciding on a major. It's a fair question that you should be ready to encounter in a job interview. It's not something that, if you are asked in an interview, you should be ambivalent about you should be able to state very clearly in a few sentences what your major was and why you chose it. Your major can influence your admission to graduate school after earning an undergraduate degree assuming graduate study is something you decide to pursue. And so this choice of major should not be made casually. It's not like you can go back and redo it. Rarely does somebody go back to undergraduate school after earning his or her undergraduate degree. Ultimately when you finish undergraduate studies you will earn a baccalaureate degree in your major. Common undergraduate degrees in the United States are the Bachelor of Arts and Bachelor of Science, commonly abbreviated as BA and BS, respectively. Here's an example. Let's say your major is Astrophysics. You will probably earn a Bachelor of Science in Astrophysics. That is what you would put on future applications for employment as your education. No one is likely to ask you about your high school accomplishments. For future employers, your education as it interests them normally starts with your decisions and achievements in community college and or university. The typical community college has a double-digit count of majors, and a university could easily have a triple-digit count. Here are a few examples of majors biology, literature, history, computer engineering, graphic arts, and many, many more. You go to the websites of some colleges or universities, but especially universities, and there may be just pages and pages of majors. For those of you attending a community college, you are now, or you will be, taking preparatory courses and then probably continuing your studies at a university. You still have a choice to make as far as what major. I have seen students who were undeclared in community college, but definitely by the time you're ready to go to university, you have to be decided on a major if you are transferring. A major always has a curriculum, the official statement of coursework required for the major. Don't think that upon choosing a subject to major in, you then just pick whatever courses you want to take in that subject and four years later you get a degree. While curricula typically allow students to make some choices, it's normal for 65% to 80% of courses in a major to be specific ones that every student in the major must take. Unlike high school, where you may have been used to teachers and guidance counselors repeatedly reminding you of things and maybe doing a lot of thinking for you, at the post-secondary level it's your duty to fully understand the coursework in the curriculum, prerequisites for courses, and anything else the curriculum may require, such as a minimum grade point average and an internship obligation. And you have to fulfill all of those requirements before graduating. The curriculum should be available for anyone in the public to access and read. Even if you're not a student at a university right now, that's okay. You still should be able to go to its website and look up the curriculum for any major that you are interested in and read it. Check the website of your college or university and especially the campus catalog or sometimes it's called a bulletin. Be aware that a curriculum can change over time, but you likely only have to follow the version that was in effect when your studies began, that is, when you entered the institution. Or you might be allowed to follow a new version of the curriculum for the major if you officially communicate that desire to your program or department. Don't take a curriculum lightly. If you fail to properly satisfy everything listed in the curriculum by the time you're ready to graduate, your graduation could be delayed one term, an entire academic year, or longer, and that would be very unpleasant news to say the least. A department or program may allow students to have exceptions to what's stated in the curriculum for a major. But don't assume anything. Suppose you want to substitute a course for something listed in the curriculum. The smart approach is to find out for certain from an official source in writing long before taking any alternative course whether the substitution you want is acceptable and receive instructions on steps you have to take to request approval. Here are some examples of course substitutions a student might want to make which would require an approved exception to the curriculum. One, you may want to take a different course at your institution. Imagine your curriculum says you need to take course XYZ, or you need to take, and it gives you maybe two options of courses. And once in a while, there's a different course on that campus that could be equivalent to one of those courses. But you have to formally ask for permission to take that in place of what's listed in the curriculum. A second example is if you want to take a summer course at a different campus of the same institution. Third example, you want to take a course at a different university in the United States. Fourth example, you want to take an online course at a different institution in the United States. And example five is you want to take a course at a university outside the United States. All five of those are examples of course substitutions in which you would need an approved exception to the curriculum. Even if the course you want to take has an identical name to the one listed in the curriculum, that doesn't guarantee that the contents of the two courses are the same. Also, be aware that the count of in-class hours of two courses of comparable names at different institutions could be different, and that may impact whether a substitution request would be granted. Let's say there's a course called Calculus 1 that's five units and lasts one quarter at your institution and is required for your major, while another course with the same name, Calculus 1, is four units and lasts one semester at a different university. Does the second Calculus 1 course have all the content of the first course? Well, the answer is you need more information. The fact that their names are the same does not necessarily mean that much. The fact that the four units of the semester-long course are generally considered equivalent to six-quarter units, which is one unit more than the five-unit quarter course called Calculus I at your institution, does not mean much either. Instead, you need to look at the official description of each course. Does the list of topics look comparable? Next, look at the count of what are called classroom hours. It may be that some of the hours per week in the given unit counts are used for a weekly review session or laboratory activity. What about the textbook used? For that, you would need the syllabus of the faculty member teaching each course. How do the levels of difficulty of those textbooks compare? Do you see the point I'm making that it would be risky for you to assume that a course called Calculus One, one university, could be substituted for Calculus one at another university, just because the names are the same. The wise approach is to submit a petition for substitution to the correct office on your campus, probably in your department or program, and do it far in advance of when you want to take the outside course. Let's not get lost here. What I'm talking about is your major has a curriculum, as every single major on a campus does. And I'm saying if you want to deviate from that major and take a course that's not listed there or that's not at your institution, you need an approved petition. And what I've just given you are some reasons why you may want petitions. But I'm also cautioning you on trying on your own to make an assumption as to whether a petition would be approved. When submitting a petition for an exception to the curriculum, you may want or need to obtain information and materials such as the following. 1. The official name of the outside course. 2. Its official description with overall unit count and count of classroom hours. 3. Whether it is a quarter-long course, a semester-long course, or a summer course. 4. The syllabus for the course. and 5. The title of the textbook used for the course, its edition number, and the name of its author. Especially for courses held at sites outside the United States, it could take a few weeks of back-and-forth email messages for you to gather all of that information and materials in writing. This is why planning far in advance is the wise approach to proceed. Not every subject in a college or university necessarily has just one major. If a department is large enough, there could be multiple majors in the same general subject, each of which will have its own curriculum of required coursework and permissible electives. Alternatively, a department could have one or two majors with multiple specializations or concentrations in each. Again, each curriculum would have a list of obligatory courses and allowable electives. I hope you're seeing the importance of the curriculum. It's something you may be given by your department or program early on when you enter the institution, but don't receive that and then shove it in a backpack or a binder and forget about it. It's something you need to be familiar with. Any deviation from the curriculum for your major is sure to require submission of a written petition. That can take time to get reviewed by all the parties involved, and a petition can be denied. Just because a friend of yours had a petition approved does not guarantee that you will. That person's major and or other coursework might have differed uh, from yours. The faculty member in the role of deciding on petitions could have changed since your friend applied for an exception. Or maybe the rules on exceptions have changed. Or the quality of education at the other institution may have been challenged since the time that your friend studied there. Never assume that a petition that was approved in the past for one person will necessarily be approved today for someone else. That's just a reality when it comes to petitions. If your petition is denied, you can respectfully submit an appeal and say, I know this other classmate who was in an identical situation to mine, and the petition was approved, and I'm wondering if I can be given the same consideration. And maybe in a case like that, with you citing that example, you would get a reversal of the denial, but there's no guarantee on that. Here's something else to think about. A university I used to be employed at had a study abroad office that told students to ask for approval of course substitutions upon returning from the foreign country where the student was approved to study. Why is that not a good idea? Well suppose you travel abroad, pay to take one or more courses there, and put in all the work needed to study and earn good grades. Then you return to the United States to your home university and submit a petition to get the courses abroad approved, only to have the petition denied. Is it not better to submit the petition in advance long before your study abroad commences? That way, if your request is not approved, you can decide whether to select different courses. Just because the university abroad that you want to study at is, as an institution, approved by your university, does not necessarily mean that any particular course you want to take at that foreign institution will be acceptable to faculty members in your department or program or major as a substitute for a course listed as acceptable in your curriculum. This probably gets complicated as I'm... <laughs> as I'm. Uh, Telling you this, I'm realizing there's there's so much involved here, and this is why I've created this podcast, because there's plenty of information that students need to know that they just don't get, or maybe they put things aside and forget about something super important. And here's an example. To summarize the major point I'm making when it comes to petitions, I recommend against the idea of asking for forgiveness rather than permission. My advice is it's better to ask for permission and to do so early. As I generally advise with anything important, if a petition for an exception to your curriculum is approved, get proof in writing. Email is a good form of written proof because every message is automatically date and time stamped, and you can later look up the message if it contains meaningful keywords that you will remember to search for. If the message of petition approval does not contain keywords that you will remember, here's my advice. Forward that message to yourself and include in your message, the one you're writing to yourself. Whatever keywords you want, along with additional information and comments that may be useful to you later. Then move the two messages in a special folder in your email account for safekeeping. How important is the curriculum for your major? Let me put it this way. Among the worst positions to be in is you think you are in your final term of school and ready to graduate in a few months, only to learn that your application is rejected because curricular requirements for your major were not fulfilled. The result could be that your graduation is delayed, and that would especially be bad if you have already received and accepted a postgraduate offer that you now end up losing because you have to stay in school. And I have met students who were in that position. When I was in a university in an advising role, there were times when I unfortunately could not approve a graduation request for the simple reason that the student had not fulfilled all of the obligations of the curriculum. That institution, the way it was done, is even though the application for graduation would be submitted early in that final quarter, the review of that request would not be done until after the quarter was over and final grades were in. By that time, just imagine a student under the assumption that he or she is going to graduate and may have already accepted a job offer, may have even made plans to relocate to a different city, and that's when the review would be performed and unfortunately Sometimes a person just could not be accepted. A person maybe had to stay that summer or come back that next quarter or semester to complete his or her studies. I want to say a few words about how majors compare from one institution to another. A major of the same name could look anywhere from somewhat different to very different from a major of the exact same name at a different institution. This could be because of differences in coursework as required by the curricula of the two institutions and or due to perceived level of difficulty and or rigor of coursework. Let's say your major at a university is physics, and for some reason you want to leave that institution altogether and go to a different university for the remainder of your studies and graduate from that second university. Don't assume that you can easily transfer to that second university and pick up where you left off and graduate when you originally planned to. Maybe you can do that, but don't assume it because the curriculum for physics at the second institution may look sufficiently different from that of the first university such that you will have to take several more courses or have an internship or project to complete. As usual, my advice is to ask official sources far in advance and get the necessary information in writing. It's okay to talk to an official in person, but follow it up with email to that same individual, where you remind the person of your meeting and state what you understood the relevant policies, rules, and procedures are, and then you ask that person to write back and confirm whether your understanding is correct and to respond with corrections. To summarize the points so far on majors, Number 1. Your major is indication of what subject area you chose to concentrate on in community college or university studies, and it can impact how potential future employers see you. We all form opinions about people based on information about a person's choices in life, and to some extent you will be assessed by others based on your choice of major. 2. Every major has a curriculum which you must be intimately familiar with and follow. Request approval in writing in advance for any exceptions to a curriculum. Three, review your curriculum at least once per year and ensure that you are making satisfactory progress toward all of its requirements. Four, your major stays with you for life, so choose it responsibly. I will talk more about this shortly. When you're looking at possible majors to select, I think you should be curious about the answer to this question. Why was that particular major created, and is it designed to give me what I'm expecting out of it? You could easily spend $100,000 or more over a four-year period for a university undergraduate education. Compare this to spending $1,000 on a new computer or phone. And yet I figure that people generally spend a lot more time investigating the features and benefits of various models of computers and phones than they do on a choice of major. Now, why is that? I think it's because people approach university with the same mindset they had in their prior schooling. Namely, they trusted that principals, teachers, and guidance counselors were looking out for their best interest. Well, what makes colleges and universities different? Answer, these institutions of higher learning are run as businesses, and people operating businesses want to maximize revenue. This is just the raw truth about higher education as it exists today. If you go to a store and tell a salesperson you want to buy a product, few people in that line of work are going to ask, have you fully explored whether this brand and this model are right for you? It's not much different when it comes to colleges and universities. Among the points I hope to get across in this podcast is that students should not assume that representatives of these big educational facilities will tell you everything you need to know, or that would be helpful for you to know. You need to be asking the right people the right questions and educating yourself so that you can make the best decisions for you. Administrators who run these big institutions just want you as a student. Because regardless of what major you select, they'll be getting money from you for the next several years for your tuition and other fees. So when they see you, here's the naked truth, they see a dollar sign. Administrators running individual departments and programs at colleges and universities also want you as a student because of the money their units get from their campuses by having you in their rosters, so you represent a dollar sign to them as well. Whether the major you choose is truly going to help you with your career goals is not the primary concern of these people, but they're never going to tell you that. Instead, their printed materials and websites will give you the impression that each of the majors they offer will take you on a great path towards success without necessarily clearly indicating what that path is and where it is likely to lead. I want you to ask yourself, why was this major created? What is it going to teach me, and what can I do with it that will help me in my life? Universities as a concept have existed for about a thousand years, and a lot of majors and the courses required by them have the same objective today as they did back then, namely to share theoretical knowledge. Here's the problem with that. Today we live in a world dominated by industry rather than philosophy, where relatively few people support themselves with careers that merely involve exchanging knowledge and explorations to find new knowledge. The vast majority of employment in a society like ours involves the practical use of knowledge. If your plan is to become a researcher in a university, then merely learning theory for four years may be sufficient. But if you plan to work in industry, as most undergraduate students do, ask yourself whether your major will provide you with practical use of knowledge that will benefit an employer. This is so important to consider before investing your time and money on what may be the one chance in your lifetime to earn an undergraduate education. Some majors exist today for the simple reason that they've always existed, and they will continue to exist as long as enough students apply to be in them, regardless of how actually useful they are in the job market. That's a simple reality of supply and demand. Going back to my example of buying a computer or a phone, products like these are removed from the market as newer models with better features are developed and as user demand for them drops. Users of those products take a fairly short amount of time to evaluate them and decide if they like them. Everyone listening to me knows what I'm talking about. As soon as you buy something, you want to explore it and quickly figure out whether buying it was a good decision, right? In contrast, an undergraduate student usually has no idea how good a major is going to be for his or her objectives because they don't know how to go about determining this. You could say it's a criticism, but it's a constructive one because I'm not just showing you where there's a problem. I'm also telling you how to deal with this problem. If you aim to go to graduate school after earning your undergraduate degree, the question you should want an answer to is, How well will this major prepare me for applying to a graduate school of my choice to study in a field of my choice, and is there anything else I ought to do as a student to get me to that objective? If instead you want to work in industry once your baccalaureate degree is earned, you should be asking this, what knowledge and skills will the curriculum for this major give me that will make me an excellent candidate for the job market, and what else should I be doing along the way to complement my studies? If you want to know who to ask those questions to and how to determine whether you're getting honest answers and if you want an independent review of the curriculum of a major that interests you, set up an advising session with me. I'll review your situation. I'll also give you my assessment of the value of your educational plan with respect to your future career plan. And this is the type of arrangement we would do via Zoom, so we would do it online. It's the one-on-one sort of assistance you would get from me that I can't give in a podcast. Plus, I do charge a fee for that. I can't give everything away uh, as I'm doing in a podcast. But that is a meeting with me that could change the rest of your life. Many students who met with me over the years said exactly that. The advice they got from me helped them to re-examine what they thought they knew, Because the problem is, you can't always know what you don't know. That is, if you don't know something, and you don't know that you don't know that thing, you're likely to be making a decision based on a lack of knowledge. And that's never a good position to be in. What I'm saying is, do your investigating before making the purchase. You would not blindly spend $1,000 on a new computer or a phone. Why then should you blindly spend $100,000 on a university education? Do you see how important the choice of major is and why you need to do your absolute best to get it right from the outset? I'm telling you these things because I want you to succeed and not make a mistake that you will later regret, and the selection of a major is among the most important decisions you face in pursuing higher education. Is it possible to change your major, and why might you want to do so? First, yes, it is possible to change a major, but successfully doing so depends in part on whether the department or program you want to be in will accept you to its major. Some majors are impacted or capped, meaning there is a limit on the count of students who are allowed to be in it. Another issue is how far along you already are in your studies. If the major you want to change to has early coursework that you have already taken, it may be possible for you to make the switch without delaying your graduation. However, if you want to change to a completely different subject area for a major that has not much of any overlap with your existing major, you might not get approved if, for example, your campus administration requires you to graduate no later than a certain number of years or terms after beginning your studies. Or maybe there is a limit to how many units of coursework you are allowed to accumulate as an undergraduate student, and switching to a different major now would cause you to necessarily exceed that limit you could petition for an exception to these limits, but there's no guarantee it would be approved. Second, even if it is permissible to change your major, I want you to ask yourself why you want to do so. If it is a smart choice for you to make, great. But if you are changing majors mainly because you want to be with friends or due to what you perceive as a more enjoyable subject to study, you could end up disappointed. Your friends need to make their own decisions on what is best for their futures, and you need to do the same for yours. Anyway, friendships do not always last, and rarely is it a good idea to make a big change in your life solely because someone else is doing it. If you'd want to change your major, it is generally best to do so as soon as possible in your schooling. Usually, the longer you delay, the less likely a request to switch will be approved. This brings me to the issue of choosing a major. The three most common reasons I hear students utter for choosing a major are the following 1. That's the major my friend chose. 2. That's the major one of my parents was in. 3. That's the major one of my siblings was or currently is in. What's missing from each of those reasons is anything directly having to do with you. What has the major your friend chose, your parent chose, or your sibling chose got to do with you? Each of those people had to live his or her own life. Except in rare circumstances, your choice of major needs to be about your life, not the life of someone else. Here's another reason sometimes stated. Some students choose a particular major because that is what one or both parents want for them. I don't want to give a blanket approval or disapproval on this because I can think of a variety of reasons why a parent may think it is wise to compel a student to have a certain major. This is an example of a situation for which I can give personalized help as part of my online advising service. Now remember, that's separate from the podcast. I would want to hear you tell me why your parent or parents want this. After also getting answers to a number of questions that I would ask, I would give you my professional opinion on this choice of major and whether I think it is a wise choice for you to be making. Of course, the decision is yours to make. I'm here as your advisor. Another big mistake students make is choosing a major based on its subject but without reading the curriculum for the major. That's about as bad as buying crackers merely because the word cracker is on the box. Would it not make sense to read the ingredients label prior to making a purchase of crackers? That's sort of what you're doing when reading the curriculum. You're getting a sense of the contents of a major. Here is where making assumptions is dangerous. The curriculum for a major at one college or university could differ significantly from the curriculum of an identically named major at a different institution, rather than assume Just read the curriculum and if something in there is unclear, ask a trusted professional like me to help you compare the two curricula. Let's now move to the topic of minors. Your major indicates the dominant subject you studied in college and or university. Probably no less than 75% of your coursework will be governed by the curriculum of your major. The rest of your coursework will be general education courses and anything else you decide to take that's not required of the major. An undergraduate student normally must have a major. Your minor, if you choose to have one, is a subject area in which you want to take just a few courses at a university. I'm not familiar with community colleges offering minors, but some liberal arts colleges do. The curriculum for a minor could be very simple with far more freedom on course selection than a major typically affords. Having a minor is typically optional. Here are reasons why you might want to have a minor. Number one, maybe you want to take a few courses in a subject area related to your major and get acknowledgement of this on your transcript and so you decide to minor in this related subject area. Two, perhaps the minor is unrelated to your major, but it has courses that interest you for personal reasons. That's okay. If you can do it, you should take one or more courses purely for personal interest while in school. An example of a minor that supplements a major is sociology for the major and statistics for the minor. This is a good combination because people who study societies need to measure trends and use statistics to analyze data that are collected in research studies of behaviors. Moreover, it may very well be that the curriculum of a sociology major at a university includes at least one statistics course, and perhaps that course will be allowed to overlap with the requirements of statistics as the minor. Or, let's say the curriculum for the statistics minor has more rigorous course requirements than the statistics course or courses required of the sociology major. In this case, provided the student can handle the higher-level study of statistics, I would recommend submitting a petition to the major department or program in which you request permission to count the tougher statistics course in place of the existing one in the curriculum of the major. What I do not recommend when it comes to minors is pursuing a minor because you think it alone will help you in your career pursuits. reason for this is very simple. Not once have I ever seen a job listing with minimum qualifications that said anything about a minor. To be clear, if the coursework for a minor is a good supplement for your major, then maybe in some way the minor could benefit you in your career endeavors. Just don't get the idea that a Designer alone is going to do a lot to move your career in any particular direction. An exception to this would be, let's say, a student takes an advanced-level course for a minor, uh, or even better, uh, multiple advanced-level courses, and those involve learning new skills, for example, rigorous methods of statistical analysis, or maybe completing a substantive meaningful project. In that case, there would be something impressive to show for the minor, besides just grades in a few lecture-based courses, and that is something you could proudly bring up in a job interview as an example of you going beyond the minimum obligations of your major. What I want you to understand here is the degree you earn, your undergraduate degree, will be in your major. What you do in addition to the major, if substantive and meaningful, could positively distinguish you from another candidate when applying for a job in the future. As with everything else, check on the official rules at your university for earning a minor. You might be allowed to have multiple minors, and you might be allowed to have some overlap in coursework between your major and a minor. But don't assume. Consult the written rules of your campus on this. Back to majoring, let's talk about the concept of a double major. Some students decide to complete the requirements of two majors during their undergraduate studies. This is easier to accomplish when the two majors are related because of course overlaps, and so it might not even take longer for you to graduate compared to just having one major. But the additional coursework may necessitate taking an additional course per quarter than you otherwise would have. There have been students who wanted my advice on pursuing two majors that were unrelated and had no course overlaps. And that was much tougher of an objective for the student to accomplish. Usually these were students who planned early in their university studies and were ready to spend term after term with a maximum allowable count of units for full-time study. Someone who is not able or willing to put in that much work will end up sacrificing great achievement and overall grade point average for having a second major. And that does not make sense. to me. Provided a student can handle all the extra work involved in taking many additional courses, there is nothing wrong with double majoring, but there should be a very good reason for doing so. There is plenty more that I have to say about choosing majors and the realities that you should be aware of when making the decision. But this is where my personalized advising service is important. In an individual advising session, I can help you determine what majors might be right for you. Help you appreciate the work involved with various majors. Help you appreciate what career paths are realistically possible with various majors. Teach you what pitfalls to avoid when deciding on a major. Teach you the eight criteria I have for deciding a major and advise you on course selections as well. Regardless of what majors you are thinking about, I have advice that will greatly help you make a wise choice. If your parents want to be part of a meeting with me on this, that's totally fine. I would even encourage that. It's not required, but it can be helpful. If you are a parent listening to this, and you alone want a virtual meeting with me, that's okay too. I really do understand what a crucial decision is ahead for your daughter or son, and that you want to give her or him the best possible advice. Remember, that is what this podcast is all about, helping listeners be educated and wise. To arrange a meeting with me via Zoom, you can reach me at the contact information provided in the description for this podcast. Be sure to mention your name in your message so that I can respond to you as a person. Also, include a detailed description and explanation of your situation and clearly state what help you would like to receive from me. If there are questions you want to ask me, state them. If it's help with a general topic that you need, tell me what the topic is. Also, let me know your availability over the next week or two for meeting via Zoom. In some cases, a person may need a one-time session to get questions answered and hear my advice. In other cases, a person may want or need multiple sessions because the topic may be too much to address in one session. Or maybe you want to arrange for ongoing advising every few weeks. I will reply to your message with my assessment of how much time it will take to help you and let you know my fee. My job is not just to dispense information to you, but to help you understand how to make decisions that are sensible, realistic, efficient, cost-saving, and with the best possible outcome as I see it. I don't just want you to be educated, I want you to be wise. That's all for this episode of the podcast. I look forward to sharing more information and advice with you in the future. You've been listening to Academic Advising for a Wise Education, a podcast by Advisor Jay. We hope the information and advice presented was enlightening. These episodes offer general advice, your situation may call for additional action or an altogether different approach. For personalized guidance specific to you, Advisor Jay offers video advice via Zoom for a fee. Contact Jay at treasureoflife@outlook.com. That's treasureoflife@outlook.com. When emailing, please include your name, a detailed description of your situation, and clearly state what help you need. Advisor Jay is here to assist you, but ultimately your education is your responsibility, and so all decisions are your own to make. That email address can also be used to send Advisor Jay any comment about the podcast. Knowledge alone is rarely enough. In life, it pays to be wise.